As you're seated, I want to ask you what it is that may be distracting you from Jesus. What is it that's taking your gaze away from looking at him? What are the things in your life that are, are standing in the way and need to be dim, but they keep you from seeing him? And then what are the things that allow you to trust in Jesus? As I look around the room, and I know some of your stories, not all of them, but some of them, I know the way that God has revealed himself to you. Joyce, you're here. It's so good to see you. 64 days in rehab. Trust in Jesus. Amen. For Sharon, good to have you here today. For Jill, who's in the hospital right now, in really bad pain. For Hunter, who we've been praying for. For the situation in Mali, unrest with Dave and April there. For our partners around the world and our people here. What is it that comes at us that tries to keep us from keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus? So sweet to trust in Jesus. What's vying for that in our lives? Oh God, we come to you overwhelmed by who you are. And you know each person in this room. You know the jobs that have been lost, the jobs that have been, been made available. You know the sicknesses that have come, treatments that have been postponed because of, of policies and procedures. You know, Lord, the plans that we had and how many times life interrupts those plans. For Nancy Myers, who Friday morning stepped into your presence. And we thank you and we praise you for the absolute certainty we have that you, God, are sovereign over all and that we can trust in you, Jesus, how many times have we put ourselves in your hand and you have been faithful? Oh God. So Jesus, we turn our eyes upon you. And we ask at this day, right now, this moment, you would help us to be totally enamored by you, that the distractions and the clutter that would serve to overtake us and keep, from, keep us from hearing you would be done away with. God, I pray that you'd cleanse this place. Holy Spirit, fill this place. Open hearts and minds to hear your truth, God, I pray. God wants to do something in your life today as you're here. Open your heart to his word and to his truth. Sweep over us, I pray, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Oh, it's good to be in the house of the Lord, isn't it? All right, I'm going to release the children through grade four, the classes that are ready for them, and we're going to look into the letter of Titus again. We've been in Titus for the last couple of weeks. We're going to look in there again today, and... Um,
We're in winding down now our summer of encouragement. It's been a, a summer where we've looked at what are the different ways that we can encourage each other to be doing the things that God has rescued and saved us to do. How can we be involved in encouraging each other? Because we need that. Because the world comes against us and we get distracted and so we need each other to be encouraging each other. And so we're starting now to look at this letter uh, of Paul to Titus as he's on the island of Crete and we're looking at the truth of what it means for the church to be living as the light. What does it mean for, for the church to be living as a light? Because that's what he's calling this church on the island of Crete to do. And today we're going to be looking at light living purity. Now, as I've been preparing the message for today, I came across some things online, and one of those was um, a Pew Research study that was done, as reported in the Millennial Evangelical. And they, they uh, polled a bunch of people, and they polled them with this question. Blank is an essential part of what it means to be a Christian. Now, I'm not going to ask you to write that down. Yeah, maybe if you don't want to write the sentence down, just write down your answers. If you don't want to write down your answers, think about what your answers would be. If you don't want to think about what your answers would be, go ahead and take a nap. All right, so here we go. What is an essential part of what it means to be a Christian? If, if you were asked that question, if I, if I brought the microphone around, even to you way in the back of the overflows, and I asked you that question, what would you answer? What would you say is an essential part of what it means to be a Christian. And could I suggest to you that that very question is the question that every Christian has asked themselves and every non-Christian in a way has asked themselves. And I believe that as we look at this section of Titus today, we're going to see the answer to this question. Now, sometimes it's hard for us to imagine what is it like? This, 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 it's amazing really, isn't it? that we have the word of God preserved for us over thousands of years? Oh, do we owe a big debt of gratitude to the Jewish people who preserved these things for us as God directed them? But to think that we have this book that's thousands of years old, that we can hold, and that God understood and knew that today we'd be looking at this passage of Scripture. And so, so it means that there's something that God wants to say into each one of our lives through this today. But it's hard for us, isn't it, to step back in time. So I thought maybe if I, if, I, if I crafted a story, it would help us. So step with me as we imagine what it might be like to be on the island of Crete, say in 60, 61 AD, okay? And so here we are, we're on the island of Crete. And imagine you're a young man named Nicholas, okay? You're a young man named Nicholas, and you've got a new wife. And her name's Julia. So here's Nicholas and Julia, and they're here on the island of Crete. And they live in a town, a port town. It's called Fairhaven. So here's Nicholas and Julia in Fairhaven. And they're on the island of Crete. And oh, it's not a nice place to live, really. Everybody's drunk all the time. And, and they're all just a bunch of liars. As a matter of fact, the island of Crete has been known as an island of liars in large part because they claimed that Zeus was dead and was buried on this island. And everybody's like, well, Zeus can't die. He's a god, so they just must all be liars that live there. So you're on this island, and, and, and everybody around you is a liar. They're all deceitful. 
They're drunk. They're just, they're just evil with everything they do. And you're married, and you're thinking, you want, to, you want to have a great start in life. And I would love it if I could just be doing things in a better way than I see around me. And as you're there on the island of Crete, you notice this other group of people. And this group of people is completely different. Because while all of your friends and all the people you grew up with believe that there's all sorts of gods, and, and that Caesar's a god, and, and that there's all these gods, and, they, and they, they go and they mess around with temple prostitutes, and it's just a, it's, it's just this mess. And, and they're constantly trying to, to make these gods happy by doing all these goofy things. And, and then there's this other group of people over here, and they're, and they're called Jews. And, and these people believe that there's only one God. They, they believe there's only one God, and, and they worship him, and they do that together. And, and they keep themselves pure. They're exactly the opposite of all the people we know. And so Nicholas and, and Julia, they start looking at these people, the Jews, and they're thinking, I don't know if they have something. It might be interesting for us to find out what that is. And then one day, all of a sudden, this man comes into town. His name is Paul. And he's got a friend with him named Titus. And they come to town and, and he starts proclaiming a brand new truth. He says he has a new truth. Something new has happened that has changed the way that we think about everything. And he began to explain what it is that he knew to be true. He said that, that he, had, he had come to a place in his life where he was met by Jesus on the road to Damascus. He talked about how he was a man who at one time was, was far, far away from understanding who Jesus was, that he actually persecuted, and he, and he was putting, putting people into persecution who were believing in Jesus, but that Jesus revealed himself And after that, Paul had no choice but to believe what he had heard. And what he had heard was this, that Jesus is God. Jesus is a man who came as God. He came, and he was fully God and fully man, and he came to the earth, and he lived a perfect life, and he was crucified, and he was buried, and he rose again rose again from the dead and he ascended into heaven where he's waiting at the right hand of the Father and one day the Father will say now and Jesus will come back to take us to be with him. And that Jesus came because our sin has absolutely separated us from God. There is no one righteous, not even one. That all of us have sinned and we've fallen short of the glory of God. But that God demonstrated his own love for us in this while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. And that the wages of sin is death. Absolute separation from God forever. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. And Paul declared that if anyone would come to a place in their lives where they would turn from their sin and repent and then trust Jesus as their Savior, and they would recognize that their sin separated them from God, turn to Jesus, ask for forgiveness. They would be forgiven and they would be set free. Free 
from all the things that controlled them, the things in their lives that they thought they had to do, all the sins that trapped them, that the evil and the wickedness that they were part of, they could be rescued from and they could be set free. Nicholas and Julia looked at each other. They said, wow, this sounds too good to be true. Could it really be true that, that God cares so much about us that he would come into the world and make himself known? That, that he would actually pay the penalty that I owe? Instead of, instead of all the other gods who, who require things of me I can't do, there's a God who actually stepped into to the world for that. They went up and talked to Paul. And they said to Paul, they said, boy, this sounds too good to be true. And Paul said, I know it does sound too good to be true, but it is true. It is true, and if you give your life to Jesus, he will rescue you, and he will save you. You will be reborn. You will be washed by him, and you will be a new creation. And no longer will you stand guilty before God. You will stand righteous before God. And Nicholas and Julia said, we're in. We'd love to do that. And they talked to God and they gave their heart to him. And Paul had to leave. But they started meeting with other people in, in Fairhaven. There were, there were different churches that met in people's houses. And so they started going to one of those house churches. And, and they got into the house church and they were so excited to find out what happens now. What, what happens next? And so they went to the house meeting. And there were some people there who had been, who had been part of the church for a while already because it, it's called a church. You see, the, the called out ones, the people who have come to a place where they've trusted Christ, they're the church. And they, they met in these homes. And, and there were these people who were meeting. And so Nicholas and Julia went and, and they started at the meetings and, and, and they, told, they told the people at the meeting, can't wait to tell you this is what happened. And the people were like, oh, I remember when it happened to us. And it was great. But now there's some other things you need to do. And Nicholas and Julia said, well, we were hoping we'd find out. And they said, yeah, you've got to start washing your hands a certain way. Because if you don't wash your hands exactly like this, then your hands won't be clean and you won't be able to eat your food. And you've got to do that in order to please God. Oh, and, and then your dishes. You have to wash those a certain way, too. There's a certain way you have to wash your dishes, and you have to take care of them a certain way. Because it's really good that you accepted Christ, but now you have to do these other things, too. And, and then there's some things about the food. You know that bratwurst? You can't eat that anymore. Okay, that's out. And, and, and this day has to be treated like this. And, and you know what? We'll just start you out slow, but... But we have a list, and, and, and the list was given to them. And Nicholas and, and Julia, they looked at each other, and they said, this, is, this isn't like at all what we thought it would be. And so they kept going, and then finally at one of the meetings, they said, well, Nicholas, uh, there's one more thing you have to do. And Nicholas is like, oh, Paul didn't mention anything about that. They were ready to give up. They thought this isn't any better than what we came out of. Why would we 
stick doing this. Well, we'll try one more time. And they went back the next week, and there was Titus. And Titus was at the meeting. And Titus said, I hear that there's been some teaching going on here. That's not quite right. Let me help you understand what exactly the gospel is. Because apparently there's become an area of confusion. You see, Jesus came so that we could have life with God. We could be pure before God. And all of these other things are no longer required. They actually never were. These ceremonial things, they're not part of the things you need to do in order to have this freedom found in Christ. Let me help you understand what the real truth is. And Nicholas and Julia looked at each other and said, Amen. This is what we came for. So that's the letter of Titus. Now you understand the names were made up, the story was made up, but it's, it's made up based on facts that we have in Scripture. And to understand that as this church was being formed, it was formed in a culture that was trying to understand what to do with this. And in it, we find that, that there were false teachers that came. And the false teachers, some of them with very good intent, were, were skewing the truth of the gospel. And so as we look at the text today, we're going to be able to see that light living purity reveals false teachers. Light living purity reveals false teachers. Because just as this was happening on Crete at the time of Titus, it's happening here today as well. There's teachings that are being added to the gospel. So how do we identify those? How do we know what those are? And how do we come to a place where we understand what it is that is an essential part of what it means to be a Christian? The text, Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 16 for there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcisions group. They must be silenced because they are ruining whole households by teaching the things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. Even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, Rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or the commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Well, it's quite a powerful paragraph, isn't it? Well, let's take a look and understand the truth of what we're seeing here, that light living purity reveals false teachers. The first thing we see in our text is that false teachers have a devastating impact on the church. False teachers have a devastating impact on the church. And, and we see it in our text. He says there's rebellious people. They're talkers and deceivers. Particularly is what that word especially means. It says, in particular, those of the circumcision group. 
they must be silenced because they're ruining whole households. Now in the context here, as I said in the story, that households were the places where churches would meet. And so what would happen is these false teachings would come into these, these house churches and it would impact what people came to, to understand as true and what is not true. And so they would be ruined, so the church would be devastated. In addition, it would, it would take families and it would cause them to have angst as well. Because whenever false teaching comes, it, it, it keeps us from understanding the truth of what God has for us. Now these were people who, who had come to a place where oral law had the same power and the same authority as the written law. Mark chapter 7. I'm going to ask you to turn to Mark 7. We're going to be going back and forth to that chapter. So you may want to put your finger there or maybe a, a, a paper or something. Mark chapter 7. And Mark chapter 7 is where, um, a moment in time where Jesus had an encounter with the Pharisees. And in this, we see through his encounter some of the things that Paul's talking about in his letter to Titus. So Mark chapter 7, verse 1. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? So we get a glimpse here of what Paul's speaking to in the lives of these Jewish people. They've got these oral traditions that they've been following, and they've given them the same credibility as Scripture. And, and in so doing, what's happened is they've missed the truth of God. And they're following traditions instead of God's word. So when, when Jesus comes and, and when he brings the gospel to light and, and he begins to send the disciples out to proclaim the truth of the gospel, it, it, it comes and it stands in the face of tradition and, and, it, and it begins to have a clash there. And that's what we're seeing here on the island of Crete in this, in this letter to Titus is the fact that, that there's this, this collision that's happening. And some of these people are doing this so that they can have gain. They, they, they can make money off of this even by their teaching of what the traditions are. So imagine Nicholas and, and Julia coming to a place where they're like, wow, we don't, we don't know what these new rules are. And so, you know, somebody says, well, I'll teach you the new rules. Of course, that'll take some time, and maybe if you could give me a little bit of money, that would help. And so they'd make some money by teaching these rules, okay? Or, or maybe they would just gain some, some attention and notoriety. It might be that that's what they would be after. So we, we look at this, and we see that and it was causing a major problem. What we learn in this is, trying to understand where do we go for our source of authority? What is your source of authority? See, each one of us has a choice of where we go and, and what we have as authority in our life. Every one of us has authority in our lives. As I've said before, the famous theologian Bob Dylan says, we all have to serve somebody, right? 
So this, this idea that we all have an authority in our lives. Ralph Neighbors, in his book, Survivor Kit, does a really great job of helping us understand four different areas. And we've talked about these before, but they're worth repeating. And I think if you were in the class this morning, you talked about these as well in the gender class. Because gender is a perfect place for us to, to take a look at what is my authority when I begin thinking what I think about gender. So if we look at four sources of authority, there's two within ourselves and two from outside of ourselves. The two sources within ourselves are our intellect and our experience. Okay, so my intellect, I, in my mind, I reason what's right or what's wrong based on the knowledge that I have and, and the things that I've read and, and based on the things I've, I've read and, and what I've determined to be true in my intellect, that becomes truth for me and then becomes my authority. The second area of, of authority for me from within myself is my experience. So what I've experienced becomes my authority. If I've experienced something like, say, I've put my hand on a hot burner, I've experienced that that's hurt. So for me, truth has become, I'm not going to put my hand on a hot burner, okay? And, and so my experience becomes my authority. And given of itself, it doesn't seem like that would be extremely terrible. And, and it's not until it gets to a place where you get into things much bigger than a stove or a burner, like gender. If we start talking about gender, what I've experienced is right. What I think is right is right. A third area of... of of authority. These first two, intellect and experience from within. The next two, tradition. These come from without. So tradition, what has been told to me in the past, what has been passed down to me, that becomes my authority. So if it, if it was something that was true in the generation before me, and the generation before them, and the generation before them, and I hold to that tradition, and that becomes my authority then that's, that's what I base all my, myself on. The final source of authority from outside of myself is Scripture. So Scripture is my authority. Okay, so coming to a place in my life where I don't believe simply that Scripture contains truth, but I understand that Scripture is truth, and it's God's revelation for me of who he is, of his character, of his nature. It's a special revelation that he's given to me, he's preserved for me, so that I can know who he is, I can know what his design is, I can know what his plan is, and I can live according to his plan and his design, and Scripture becomes the authority for my life. Now see, those four sources of authority, as they work together, built on Scripture, so that out of Scripture, I come to a place where a tradition is formed that's based in Scripture. I come to Scripture, and, I, and through my intellect, because we're to love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. So, so of course, I'm, I'm trying to renew my mind, Romans 12, 1, so that I don't conform to the patterns of this world, but I'm, I'm transformed by the renewing of my mind. And so instead of my intellect being wandering on what I think is right, I take my intellect to find out what God's saying is right. And I take my experience. My experience becomes the reality of what I experience in Christ so I take my thoughts captive to Christ, to the word of God, and scripture becomes the authority of my life. And so when Titus comes into this group, then he begins talking to these people, and, and 
in explaining to them, he says, this is what scripture says. This is the authority. This is truth. And other teachings that make their way are devastating. They have a devastating impact on the church. So how does that happen for us today? Okay, so, so we have all these hot topics. We have gender, we have abortion, we have, we have divorce, we have remarriage, we have, we have all of these things. And, and how do we determine what's right and what's wrong? How do we determine that? And if we, begin to put, if we begin to put our thoughts on it and our teachings or what traditions say or those things, we will miss the truth of what God has to say. So suppose you come and, and you come to the church and maybe you've come and you've just come to know Jesus as your Savior and then you come in and, and, I, and I say to you, okay, you have to wear a suit every Sunday. It's required. If you're really going to know God, you're going to know God as you wear a suit. All right? I'm not going to say that. Okay, I wear a suit because I like to wear a suit. I figure if the weatherman can wear a suit, I can wear a suit because my forecast is a lot better. All right? (laughs) Amen. But it's not required that I wear a suit. It's not required that you wear a suit. It's not required that I wear slacks and a polo. That, if we start adding to it, and that's a silly one. Well, we can look at music, we can look at, and if all of these things come around, and if we're not careful, false teachings can be devastating to the church. Because the church is built on the absolute truth of the rock. And the rock is Jesus and the gospel. And the gospel sets us free through new birth. So, is there any way in which I've allowed for false teaching to influence my thinking? Is there any way that false teaching has influenced me? Second thing we see. Remember, we're looking at light living purity and how that reveals false teachers. The first thing is false teachers have a devastating impact on the church. The second thing we'll see here on the island of Crete is that false teachers must be rebuked sharply. Paul tells Titus, You've got to go and you've got to rebuke them sharply. You've got to talk to them. And what that means is you need to correct them rigorously. Right? You, you, you have to go and correct this. And you need to do this rigorously. And I love that Scripture doesn't leave us wondering why. He says, do this so that. Okay, I love when there's so that there. Don't you ever wonder sometimes, why are we doing this? Well, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to the Jewish myths or the commands. So the reason and the purpose for Titus going to these false teachers and talking to them was so that they could be corrected, so that what they were teaching that was wrong, they could change and they could understand the fullness of the faith so they could be sound in the faith. Listen, the things that cause the greatest angst in your life as a follower of Jesus Christ are the things that that cause you to wander from the truth. If you live in the very center of God's will and his truth and his purpose for your life, you're not going to experience the angst of wondering if you're pleasing him or not. It's when you wander outside of that you begin to have all these angst and these thoughts in your minds that start to pull you away from him because you're, you're following traditions and myths and things that you've been told are true or things that you've thought were true that actually aren't the truth of the word of God. 
So as you, as you look at these things and as you, as you see these things, and so we come alongside people and we say, you know, someone comes up to me and they say, brother, I, I don't know, where, where from scripture do you see that you have to wear a suit? You can't show that to me. Okay? No, but I can show you you're not supposed to have long hair. Kidding. Okay, so... Churches divide over those things. You, you get that, right? So someone comes up to me and says, brother, I don't, I don't see where that is here. I'm like, wow, I guess, I guess you're right. I've kind, of been, I've kind of been putting myself into a trap here. Man, thank you. Thank you. All of a sudden, I can rely more on my relationship with God that's been purchased through Christ instead of my own efforts. Thank you for helping me understand the gospel more than I understood it before. You see, we have to be ready for this. We have to be ready to have someone correct us if we're walking outside the will of God. If we're teaching something that's outside the will of God, we have to be ready for that. And if I'm ever, you have to come and see me, approach me. I'm ready for that. And the reason that we do that is so that people can be won over. Let's step back into Mark and see what Jesus says as he talks to them, as he talks to the Pharisees. He replied, verse 6, Mark 7, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites as it is written. See, that's kind of sharp, right? You hypocrites, okay? Um, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. Verse 13, thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. Now, you can be sure if they were doing that, we are too. Okay, it's really easy to look at other people and say, man, they've got problems, all right? Anybody ever do that? Okay, so, so it's easy to do that. But listen, there's, there's places we're doing that too. There's places I'm doing that too. There's places where we think, well, well, surely just I must need to do this and this and this to be more acceptable to God. If I do this and this and this, God must be, you know, I I must be, you know, what are the things that we add that we think we have to do these things in order to be acceptable to God? You understand there's only one thing that makes you acceptable to God, and that's Jesus. Jesus and Jesus alone makes you acceptable to God. So what are the teachings that, that come into my life that cause me to somehow think that, that I need to be more than what God has required? And am I ready to rebuke false teaching sharply so that a teacher could have sound faith? Because faith is so important. Paul, in, chapter, in verse 1 of, of Titus, says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, a faith and a knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life. The faith, it's about the faith. And the faith is the message of the cross. The third thing we see is that false teachers are corrupted. 
in their, in their minds and in their consciousness. They are corrupted. And Paul, as Paul tells Titus, he says, to the pure, all things are pure. To the pure, all things are pure. And so he, he steps in and he begins to help Titus to, to teach them, to understand that there is a purity that is required. We're talking about moral purity. See, there's, there's two types of purity talked about here. There's the moral purity and the ritual purity. To the morally pure, all things are ritually pure. Right? Because what the Jewish people are trying to tell them is that ritually you have to be purified in order to be morally pure before the Lord. And, and Paul is saying, no. No, you, you must be morally pure, but ritual pureness does not take you to moral pureness. Christian Smith has coined a phrase called moral therapeutic deism. Moral therapeutic deism. And what moral therapeutic deism is, is it's the belief that, that there is God, there's a God who's supreme, and that, that God has created us to be happy. And, and God has designed for us to be happy, and that all good people will go to heaven. Okay, so, so there's a God who's supreme, he's a creator, and he's, he's made everything, and he's, he's made everything so that we could be happy, and if we live a good life, we'll go to heaven. And the truth is that many people believe that's what the gospel is. But it's not. It's not at all. That is not Christianity. What naturally follows then is that God designed me to be happy, so it's his job to make me happy. And what makes me happy, I will define, and God will do that. You see, what happens there is now I'm God. All right, so, so God isn't God. And good people don't necessarily go to heaven. In 1878, after years of exper- experimentation, various formulations, there was a new soap that was designed. It was named Ivory Soap. Anybody remember the slogan for Ivory Soap? It floats. Why did it float? 99.44% pure. There was only 0.56% impurity found in Ivory Soap. That's pretty good. You want a fascinating sidebar on Ivory Soap? It has nothing to do with what we're talking about. but it's really cool. After weeks of consideration and rejection of a variety of names, Mr. Proctor had a sudden flash of inspiration while attending Sunday church service. (laughs) The search for a name ended when the minister read from Psalm 45, 8, All thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory palaces whereby they have made thee glad. And in 1879 of October, the first bar of ivory soap was sold. Amen. So some of you may have a flash of inspiration here today. 
kind of cool to think of that, isn't it? That ivory soap was named after the ivory palaces. 99.4% pure. That's pretty good, isn't it? Isn't that bad? And for someone who believes in moralistic therapeutic deism, they would say that person's going to heaven. The problem is, that's not quite good enough. 99.44%, nope. 99.7, nope. 99.99, nope. 100%, that's what's required. 100% pure. Nothing else. God is holy. He's perfect. He's just. He's righteous. He's majestic. And he requires absolute purity. For us to be, to, for us to be brought into his presence, it requires that we don't have 0.1%. Man. Oh. I have to be perfect to go to heaven. And so do you. I'm not perfect. I'm not. For me to achieve perfection is like, okay, I'm going to the moon. Did I get close? (laughs) Okay, see, that's what my best efforts are. But God demonstrated his own love for us. While I was still a sinner, Christ died for me that I can be justified. I can can be, by God, declared righteous. So that because of Jesus Christ, who lived an absolutely perfect life, because he was God, and he died on the cross, paying the penalty of death that my sin earned, that your sin earned, as he died on the cross, my sin credited to his account, his righteousness, credited to my account, so God declares me as not guilty, as righteous, as perfect, as 100% pure. Man. See, I am pure, not because of anything I've done, but because of what Jesus has done for me. Now, Jesus talks to the Pharisees in Mark 7. And he says this. What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. I'm in verse 20. For from within, out of a man's heart come evil thoughts. The sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. Oh man, none of that sounds pure. But you see what happens, John 13, Jesus says to, the, to Peter, he says, unless I wash you, you'll have no part with me. Unless I wash you, Jesus says, you'll have no part with me. In Titus 3, Paul says this in verse 4, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy, he saved us through, watch it, the washing of rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. You need to be washed by the blood of Jesus. You need to be washed by the Holy Spirit, renewed, reborn. 
a new creation. Where are you in this? What is the difference between being pure and being corrupted? See, ritually, I can do nothing to make myself morally pure. There are no works that I can do to make me good enough. But through Jesus, I can be absolutely and totally pure. As we move forward in Titus, we're going to see how since we're morally and, and, and completely pure, it's going to cause us to live differently. But the things that we do to live differently aren't so that we'll be pure. They flow because we are pure. So, so what? Am I pure or am I corrupted? And do I know the difference? Are you pure or are you corrupted? Do you know the difference? Are you living in your understanding of moralistic therapeutic deism? Do you think that you know God? And do you think you're going to heaven or do you know you're going to heaven? Because Jesus Christ has washed you and you've been reborn. How did you answer the question? How did you answer the question at the beginning? What do you see as an essential part of being a Christian? Now you may have things on your list like I need to pray more, I need to read my Bible, I need to be kind to people, I need to, you know, you might have a whole list of those things. And the truth is in this survey, the two lists, they asked Christian and non-Christian and the lists are virtually the same. On your list, did you put that you need to be reborn? Did you put that you need to have faith in Jesus Christ? See, in order to be a Christian, the most essential thing is that you've trusted Christ. That you've got faith in Jesus. That you've been reborn, that you've repented, that you've turned, that you've experienced the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life and you've been set free. Oh, I pray that each one of you, I'd love to come and, and ask you, tell me when you did this. I could just come and grab you by the shoulders and say, when did this happen for you? If you've never met Jesus, if you've never experienced rebirth, if you've never been set free, don't leave here today. Somebody say amen. Amen. All right, if you're sitting next to someone who said amen, you make sure you talk to them before you leave because they'll tell you. Lord Jesus, thank you for the fact that you came to rescue us. That while we were still sinners, Christ, you came and you died for us. Lord, forgive all the other things we've made this because it's all about you. It's about nothing other than you. And God, you've rescued us so that we don't have to be trapped. Lord, you know each heart in this room. Every person. Holy Spirit, sweep over this place today. Let not one of us leave without knowing that we've been washed, spotless, 100% pure by the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.